0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the golfer's journal podcast presented by Titleist, the number one ball in golf. I'm Tom Coyne, senior writer at the golfer's journal. And today, really, it's 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 kind of a moment because here I am hosting the golfer's journal podcast. And I'm speaking with the man whose shoes I've been trying to fill for many a month now. DJ Pahowski. DJ, what's happening, man?
1: Not much is happening at all, man. I just I've I've been waiting to come on and just critique your hosting style, uh, this whole time, and and now I finally got a chance to do it. This is this is great.
0: That's what we're here to do today, really. <laughs> uh, hash it hash it out on all my gaps. No, but man, hey, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, you were hosting and I was coming on, so it's it's crazy how how uh, time has passed and um life has changed at the golfer's journal and for you no laying up for sure um but also still writing for us and that's what we're going to talk about today one of the pieces that you wrote in number 11 which is just a fantastic story about sylvie's valley ranch um i you know reading it i i visited there the summer so reading it you know brought back a lot of good memories and um also annoyed me a little bit because it's like my big story in my america book and you scooped me again oh, remember how you scooped God. me in the scotland book on i would i was just about Dude, to say like you know twice. i hope I, I hope
1: i didn't step on your toes with the uh, regards to the book i don't i don't know well <laughs> hey man li- listen it's 2020 maybe you should pick a medium where you don't have to you don't have to wait a year for your stuff to come out
0: <laughs> this is true <laughs> this, th- fair point uh you can't yeah, you're gonna get scooped when it takes a year <laughs> from your finishing the book to getting it to Well the no, shelves. but I I hope that uh it's such well, a I hope great that,
1: spot. I hope that my uh I hope my story lined up with your experience then. It's it's cool that we have both been there because I don't know too many people who have. We're in a small
0: exclusive club. Yeah. Uh having been out there. And no, that's what I loved about the story because you know, I love how you talk it, that's it's, I had exactly the same experience. Um I wasn't there with Neil. <laughs> but, uh, being there and the food, right. You know, that's something I'm writing about in the book as well. Cause that's just such an interesting part of the experience, you know, rolling up there and they, they give you these sausage or pepperoni or whatever that they've made from the animals that are out, you know, in the fields there. And, uh, I think that's such a unique thing and, you know, sitting down and just, and having dinner with all the guests there. I love how you captured that. 'Cause right, like they tell you like, Hey, dinner's at six and you're eating with you know, I was by myself and I'm like, I you know, I'll just room service would be great. Right. And I'm like, no, you know, you <laughs> are gonna sit around the chow table, <laughs> we're gonna ring the bell and, and you're gonna join us. Yeah. And I was it, not looking forward to it, but no, I wasn't as you either described, it's really special.
1: It is, and it's uh yeah, I mean I know yeah. I know we'll get to the to the reading uh in a minute here, so I won't go into too many specifics, but yeah, it's uh it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around the fact that you, uh, that you really, by the end of your trip, you're really looking forward to going and sitting down and eating with strangers and, you know, getting to know their life story and connecting with other human beings. Who would have thought, you know, that could be a fulfilling experience. I know
0: it's very foreign and strange. The idea of like, we're just going to sit around and talk to each other and get to know each other. Um, but yeah, it was one of the favorite, definitely a favorite experience for me on my travels last year. So was so psyched to read it. You did such an amazing job with it. Um, I love how they captured the photography as well. That chandelier, the golf clubs is just it's just so cool. So oh, just a really, really unique place. Everyone's going to hear about it in a minute. You might have read about it um, in number 11 already. But what do you have coming up for us It's a little bit different? DJ, you're going to be reading, and I think you're going to be joined by Neil, correct?
1: Correct. Uh, yeah, Neil and I sat down. He was with me on the trip. Um, But he had not heard the story yet. So he was, uh, you know, fresh ears listening to me uh, bloviate on about my uh, my experience. And and so he'll interject every now and again. And and we kind of we take some detours uh, away from the story. But uh, hopefully you'll you'll grasp um, you'll grasp what's in the magazine and as well as a couple essential stops as well.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. So you also have some pretty cool stuff coming up in 12 that I want to talk about. Before we get to that, just remind everyone, hey, if you're playing at Sylvie's Valley, wherever you're playing, if you're like most golfers, you're looking for more speed, more precision, and more consistency in your game. And the Pro V1 and Pro V1X, they deliver on that every time. Uh, They're designed to fit your game regardless of your swing speeds or ability levels. So prove how good you can be. Tee up the Pro V1 and Pro V1X on your next round. That's the ball I was playing out there in Sylvie's, and it, it, uh, it served me well. I uh, also want to take a moment to thank the sponsors from the pages of the Golfer's Journal, and that's Titleist, Link Soul, Scotty Cameron, Links and Kings, Oakley, and New York Private Bank and Trust. If you're enjoying the podcast, if you're enjoying the book, make sure to subscribe or resubscribe if you're enjoying the book. It's time for a lot of us to do that for sure. And if, and if you do so, you're going to have a chance to get number 12. And you've got a really cool story coming up in number 12, DJ, about the Dunvegan.
1: Yeah, really just the the intro to uh, a very cool piece that, that Travis and some other people put together. But yeah, I, I kinda wrote an essay, um an essay for the front of that story just about what the Dunvegan means, uh I don't know, means to me, I guess, or or means to hopefully a lot of a lot of other traveling golfers and um it's a pretty special place. Tom, have you been you've been to Scotland, correct? <laughs> I, I
0: have and, yeah so uh, you, you know have, you know the Dunvegan. vegan
1: yeah it's the best uh kind of like post post round hang drink in you know in golf and um it's kind of one of those places i think cliches you know become cliches for a reason um it, it's one of the one of the things you hear first about uh, st andrews is you know when you get done playing the old course you need to go to the Dun vegan and um it it, it like I said, I think those things become well worn uh, for a reason. It's because a lot of times they're they're just that good. But what the uh, what the story kind of gets at, I think, or at least my intro of it is, um, you know, that's kind of the it's almost the the place built on the American dream a little bit. It's everybody who goes to St. Andrews really thinks about like, man, I I think I could pack up and live here. I, I really I think I could do it. And, uh, shout out to the, the Willoughby's. They were the ones who actually did it and they, they made it work. And, uh, so they should be they're heroes in, in my eyes.
0: Yeah, totally. Such a cool spot. And that's going to be a great story. I mean, other stuff from number 12, uh, Travis has a great story with, um, Ricky Fowler and Matt Wolf and you're in there. Will Bardwell does this story about, uh, prohibition's influence on courses on the Canadian border, um, and, I damn it, I got scooped again. I'm <laughs> writing about one of the, I was literally just yesterday writing about These are one all of just setting the, the for, on setting the table the for setting the table for your book. <laughs> Maybe it is. Maybe it's just wedding appetites. Exactly. Um but these cool courses where part of it's in America, parts in Canada, so that you could golf and, and drink, you know, in the nineteen twenties. So uh that's gonna be really fascinating. And I have a story in twelve as well about going to the most difficult golf course to find in America. Um, I'm not going to give you any hints about where that might be, but if you want to read those stories and you want to read 12, 13, 14, yeah, right? How about it? Um, But if you want to read those stories, remember, up those subscriptions, subscribe to the Golfer's Journal, subscriber-based model here, and you allow us to do what we're doing. And actually in 14, I just turned in a, a story to Travis that, DJ I'll tell you I think it's going to be well for me it's the it's the most meaningful thing that I've ever written in golf uh but, book golfers journal I mean that's or, no otherwise. that's high praise so I'm really excited about that one so for myself <laughs> <if> <laughs> I just I mean, mean you know, you've re- you've um, written a lot of meaningful
1: things so I can't wait to see I can't wait to see it Yeah this one is is um
0: it's going to be uh yeah I'm 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 excited about it and uh so if you want to get 12 13 14 get those subscriptions in so without further ado let's take a trip to oregon out to yonder (laughs) sylvis valley ranch and play some reversible golf eat some goat have a good time with our friends dj and neil dj thanks so much for doing this and for joining us absolutely good to good to talk to you all right be well friend see you
1: and take it away hello neil Hello, Mr. Non-Repeating. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, we're here today to talk about Sylvie's Valley Ranch. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear Sylvie's Valley Ranch? Rural. Very. <laughs> exceptionally <laughs> far rural. Far away. Exceptionally rural. Uh, far
2: eastern Oregon. High desert. Flying
1: to Boise to get there.
2: Uh, or you drive down from uh, Whitefish Lake, which is about 12 hours.
1: Yeah, what were you doing out there?
2: I was at a bachelor party for a friend uh, from college at uh, in Montana. And I decided to rent a car and just, I've never really seen the great American West in all its beauty. So I drove uh, west from Whitefish through Spokane. Uh, Spokane, quarter, I believe. Spokane, it's Coeur d'Alene, Co- Spokane, down through, Kenneth uh, um, um crap, now I can't remember the town That's on right. the border of um, Washington. It's on the Columbia River between Washington and Oregon, and then down into Oregon. Um, once you cross into Oregon, there's not not much going on. Um, it's a, it's a vast and beautiful part of the country.
1: It is. And it's a place that we ended up for a golfer's journal story. Uh, when was that? End of last, that, that was kind was, of last fall. Uh, August, August, August. Yeah. Um, so we wound up there. I was writing, uh, the piece that we're going to be talking about today. You were working on a video that we're going to be rolling out on, uh, the no laying up channels, multiple various platforms, yes. um, to, to give people a little, a little more multimedia view of it, but uh first things first, we're gonna just dive right in. I don't think you've read this story yet. I have not. Early
2: access to the <laughs> golfers journal. What well, a, a
1: treat. That's exciting. Well, by the time everybody hears this, they will they will have uh they'll have it in their hands. So I don't think it'll be early access feeling for them. Okay. You know what I'm saying? I do. All right. <clears throat> but still a treat for me. It's still a treat for you. <laughs> well, you you factor semi heavily into this story. So just go ahead and if there's anything I get wrong, anything you want to expound on, you just you just jump right in.
2: Okay, Dispatches from the New Frontier.
1: Dispatches from the New Frontier. Uh, Shout out to, uh, I don't know, Travis probably came up with that headline. Travis or Casey or Brendan. Who knows? Redefining dinner conversation and what makes a great golf trip at Sylvie's Valley Ranch. Words by yours truly, DJ Pajowski. Photos by Brian Orr, unless otherwise credited. Let's dive in, shall we? We shall. Jeff Campbell absolutely positively does not need to be making sourdough seven days a week in a remote patch of land in eastern Oregon. He has a PhD in immunology from Stanford University and spent years working in the Bay Area biotech scene. Shout out to Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, But as soon as he launched into an unforgettable history lesson on this particular loaf, my dinner companions and I were thankful he made the decision to stay. Campbell's passion is just one of the wonderful things, wonderful peculiarities of Sylvie's Valley Ranch where the mundane things we take for granted back home become highlights of the experience. The Bandons and Cabots of the world may have Sylvie's outclassed in natural scenery and architect name recognition, but at each of those properties, with their high number of rounds and room nights, guests may be understandably held at something of an arm's length. When you're at Sylvie's, Scott, Sandy, and Jeff Campbell pull you in and make you feel like you're part of the family. And like most families, it starts at the dinner table. The threat of small talk stilted <clears throat> God damn it. <laughs> this is harder than it seems. The threat of stilted small talk lingered heavily as we approached our first dinner. You see, at Sylvie's, there's nowhere to hide from it. Conversations with complete strangers are built into the to the design of the place. The bare bones restaurant operation means that most meals, especially dinners, are served family style with the other guests. Was that was that a positive or negative for you?
2: It was an unexpected positive. Okay, good. Um, but yes, the you, you did have to kind of be prepared for the small talk, um, but it, it ended up being a positive. And I think going, I think it adds a, a layer to my desire to go back, because you never know who else will be a guest there. You know, it was the two of us, and then it, it's just a well, kind of a crapshoot.
1: You might, you might be taking the words out of my mouth here. Uh, back to the story. When we visited on our, <clears throat> when we visited on a stretch of a weekday evenings during the late summer, there were another ten or so guests on property. So gathering the entire resort around one table felt more like an intimate dinner party than a middle school assembly. When the dinner bell rings, yes, as you can attest, it's an actual dinner bell. Uh, guests file into the beautiful high ceiling dining room and musical chairs themselves into a pair of long banquet tables. This is the only proper restaurant on site and its hours are sharply fixed. In other words, if you miss the bell, you are what most frontiersmen of a bygone age would call shit out of luck. My travel companion, fellow no-laying-up compatriot Neil Schuster, and I found two seats near a cheerful-looking elderly couple on the end of one of the tables and prepared to answer or reciprocate the standard sleepy questions about jobs, siblings, weather, and our current Netflix lineups. We were fresh off a pair of cross-country flights into Boise, Idaho, and a three-hour drive over gravel into the cell service desert of eastern Oregon, during which we passed an actual building called the Bates Motel. Shout out to uh, Alfred Hitchcock and Psycho. <clears throat> Small talk with strangers did not sound appetizing to two weary travelers, but it wasn't long before we realized that Sylvia's demands a different mindset. It's most effective if you're willing to take a step back in time and strip away the distractions that made you take the trip in the first place. Before the dinner table conversations even reached even reached the so where you from stage we po- we were politely cut off by Jeff Campbell Sylvie's overqualified food and beverage director
2: and to convert Jeff was the the chef or the bartender
1: well he he was the bartender was but the, bartender, the food and beverage right? director yeah, he was yeah. kind of in charge of everything
2: yes and it, he he um he ran shit he he absolutely <laughs> did he absolutely did
1: uh before we do anything here he announced it's important that you all know a bit about the sourdough bread that's sitting in front of you. He or someone else from the resort gives this speech every single night, but it never, never seems to feel forced or rote. While living in a house full of microbiologists in Palo Alto years ago, Jeff and the rest of the scientists became obsessed with the science of baking. We started capturing wild, <clears throat> we started capturing wild yeast from different sources and trying out all these different breads with them. He said, "In fact." I'm sure that there are many freezers at Stanford to this day that have archives of our sourdough cultures frozen away. That's just how scientists are. Once you have something that works, you never you you need to make sure you don't lose it, end quote. After Jeff's brothers Scott, and Scott's wife, Sandy, sold their veterinary practice in 2007. By the way, Neil, this was the largest private practice in the country at the time. Uh, they purchased the expansive Sylvie's Valley Ranch, a working goat and cattle ranch that sits on a plot of land roughly the size of Chicago. How about that? Pretty big. While they were in the process, oh, I thought got to turned the page past. I thought it.
2: Sandy and Jeff were.
1: That's,
2: no. no, it's Jeff. Okay, Scott. Scott and Jeff. Scott was
1: not there when we were there.
2: Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Some for some reason, I thought Sandy and Jeff were brother were brother and sister. But sorry, please continue. Thank you.
1: While they were shaping part of the 140,000 acres into a luxury resort, the Campbells were trying to figure out who in a country of seven in a county, sorry, of seven thousand residents would be capable of building a world class food and beverage operation. After a brief stint in cooking school in Vermont, Jeff, the family baker, decided he was the perfect person for the job. He went on to explain that a good, spongy sourdough starter will stay alive and multiply in perpetuity as long as it's fed regularly with flour and water. The particular starter that Jeff uses at Sylvie's has an intensely special meaning to the Campbell family. Jeff got it from Abel Diaz. Abel Diaz got it from Julio Urizar. Julio Urozar got it from Mildred Graves. Mildred Graves got it from her mother, and her mother got it from a Basque hermit out near Wagontire, Oregon, more than 100 years ago. And, Neil, this is in parentheticals here, but in case you were curious how desolate Wagontire is, according to the Oregonian, its population from 1986 to 1997 was two. Uh, It was William and Olgie Warner. So probably not a lot of people out there 100 years ago. I
2: want to jump in here because this conversation we had about the starter, I was just kind of... uh, flummoxed from the start of it. I couldn't figure out... Like, I was like, wait a second. Is starter... I had actually raised my hand. I was like, is starter alive? Is it like a... Is it a... <laughs> I
1: had an absolutely no idea. Is I was alive? right there. I'm glad you asked. It's the whole thing. Like, uh, if you ask someone else in the class, probably has the same yeah. question.
2: I was like, I kind of embarrassed. Like, is it like some kind of, of uh, you know, microscopic organism or something? And so then explaining all this, and I didn't realize that bread had like a family tree of that kind that you just kind of kept going. No idea. I had no idea that starter existed. So we'll, we'll,
1: we'll get into maybe some starter later because I, I got deep in the starter scene for, for a minute after after we left. Well this you trip. you
2: took some starter with you. <clears throat>
1: I did. That was the whole cool thing was like uh you know if you if you really like the bread, they'll give you some starter to take home. Put it right in your bag and put it right in your fridge. And so I did that,
2: made a couple of loaves. It was great. I was continuing my road trip through the <laughs> great American West yeah, so right. I didn't want to take it. It would have died with yep. you. But all right, this is a quote. When we opened
1: Sylvie's Valley Ranch, Abel Diaz said he'd give us some of his starter, Jeff explained, but I had to remember where it came from. So that's what we do every single night. The bread is but one example of what makes Sylvie's Valley Ranch different. Plenty of resorts use local myths and lore to spice up the guest experience. Very few do it without the patronizing stink of consultants or brand managers carefully, quote, curating an experience. At Sylvie's, tradition seems to be in place because that's how the Campbells and the people of Harney County have always done things. I hope that makes sense. What I was trying to say is basically every time you go to, I will never forget like going to Hawaii, and they have someone working at the resort who's like, oh, no, he's our, he's our culture uh, ambassador or something. It, it just feels like. And they give you a lay. Oh, yeah, it's, it's just awful. You know, well, that's what you do. Yeah, and this, yeah. this feels like.
2: no, well, Literally, this, this is what we do because it's, yeah, like it's how not we Yeah, it's not contrived.
1: This is like what we have to do.
2: Like yeah. if we don't have the starter, we can't, we can't have bread. Well, last last sentence in this paragraph, but uh,
1: I'm not a culinary expert, but let me tell you, it was the best goddamn bread I've ever had. I don't know if you want to verify or, or push back on that. Uh, I'm a
2: huge fan of sourdough, and this sourdough did not disappoint.
1: Good. All right, moving on. <clears throat> I think you're going to like this paragraph. This is technically a golf story, and I promise we'll get there, but first we need to discuss the beavers. <laughs> Because without the (laughs) environmentally reckless actions of the Hudson's Bay Company in the 1820s, we're probably not playing golf in far-flung Oregon plot some 200 years later. The story is best told by Colby Marshall, the Sylvie's general manager who is so much more than that. Remember Colby? Yes, I do. Uh, Marshall has been here since the beginning, and his background is something to behold. When he first started at Sylvie's, his his job title was Vice President of Guest and Livestock Operations, which always makes me laugh. His past lives include Forest Fighter and Congressional Chief of Staff focused on conservation. He's part cowboy, part scientist, part hotelier, part encyclopedia. Today he's in charge of everything that happens on Sylvie's part breathtaking, part bleak, seemingly endless swath of land. Quote, you guys call it lifeless and desolate and empty if you want, Marshall told us with a boisterous, sarcastic laugh, but we prefer the term frontier. The land didn't always look like this, Marshall explained during a three-hour guided ATV tour of the ranch that left Neil and me dusty and enthralled. Years ago, it was harsh and dry in this valley. Beginning in the 1820s, the Hudson's Bay Company, under the direction of the British government, trapped and killed an estimated 200,000 beavers on the land that today makes up Sylvie's Valley Ranch. Marshall, who rattles off the history and dates like he's reading from a textbook, explained that the British didn't want the French, or their rebellious former colonies to derive any value from the land upon their exit. So like they did in much of the American Northwest, they aimed to make the land a fur desert. Their plan was to strip all the wealth off the land, Marshall told us. But when they did, they fundamentally changed the hydrology of the system for hundreds of years. We're still dealing with this today. This section of Oregon's high desert receives only about 10 inches of moisture per year. With much of that concentrated in quick snowmelt and early spring rains, the water tends to sheet off the land quickly instead of soaking in and creating the lush green valleys needed for grazing. Think about what beavers do, Marshall explained. They build dams which slow down that water and create ponds. That slow slow-moving water soaks up the sponge of this valley and creates more grass and trees and habitats. Everything depends on it. American homesteaders began arriving in the la- American homesteaders began arriving on the land in 1883. The, Craddock, the Craddocks and the Hankinses, names you'll see at the golf course, were the first to arrive. Today, there are still relics of handmade houses that dot the landscape. But apart from a few families who stuck out the trying conditions, the land went through a number of different owners as it continued to atrophy and dry out. There was a San Diego eccentric who raised elk and sold their horns as aphrodisiacs. Neil wanted to get more information about that. Uh, there were grazing associations and developers. Someone tied to the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s owned it for a minute, but each owner of the land seemed to share the same short-sighted vision. Nobody put anything back into the land, Marshall said. Everyone took from it. They over-harvested it, they overgrazed it, and they didn't take care of the irrigation system. That's the iteration of the valley that Scott and Sandy Campbell grew up knowing. Long before they built their veterinary practice, they were children in nearby Burns, Oregon. When we were dating and when we were engaged, we would see it all the time, said Sandy. We would drive through this valley, we'd see this ranch and think, wow, imagine what we could do with that piece of land. In 2007, they decided to find out. After selling their business and retiring, the Campbells were ready for a new project. Scott was home for two weeks, and already he was in the kitchen rearranging all my drawers, Sandy said. I told him he probably needed to go somewhere where he was in charge. Sandy was the best. The Campbells purchased the ranch as a place to relax in retirement, but when they took stock of what they had, they realized how much work there was to be done. In other words, the landscape we saw used to be even worse off. We spent quite a few years just figuring out how to get the agricultural side of things back in shape, Sandy said. Part of the answer turned out to be the implementation of beaver helper dams, a rock-based way to mimic the effect beavers have on an ecosystem. It's a simple method that uses one of the most natural technologies on Earth, and it's worked swimmingly. A little pun there. You get that? It did. Nice work. <laughs> After two or three years of working on this, the ecosystems are healthy and the wildlife is returning, Sandy said. We can finally run our goats and cattle to graze the way that they're supposed to. It's another example of the Campbells looking backward to build the future. It seems to pop up around every corner at Sylvie's Valley Ranch. The solutions aren't simple, but they're far from easy. The next step was getting people to come see it.
2: I'll I'll comment here. We we took a four-wheeler ride around the property. Everything was dusty, but there was this one central valley where they were doing these beaver dams and it looked like the uh, what is the hanging gardens of babylon <laughs> you know, like it was it was just, it was truly lush and uh it was unreal yeah and my my dad uh we call him the franchise he's a big waterfall guy so i was like man he shout would, out to the foz yeah he would love this right it was just uh basically dams that would would just kind of pool into almost wider and wider pools it, it seemed like as right. it as it flowed down um and i just had no idea that beavers had that much of an impact it is something
1: i never ever ever would have thought of and
2: we need to reiterate the hudson bay company those are bad bad dudes bad dudes who ran some bad boys they out sure there did. in I, that valley I, what was the guy's name the um the head of the hudson bay company out uh, there? i can't remember you're putting me on the spot i'd have to i'd have to look it up he was a bad dude he's a bad dude um one other thing i want to call out that i don't think will be in here is that there's no snakes Right. How about that? So in the whole county, a, right? Yeah, and and I asked, he said it's a high desert and it's one of the few places in the United States that does not drain to the ocean. So on all sides there are mountains that the water drains into a lake that's like 100 miles south right. of the of the ranch. So there are no no snakes in the county, which I because it seemed like the perfect place for snakes.
1: It seemed like a the epicenter of rattlesnakes.
2: Which was great because I was blowing the ball all over the place. <laughs> I didn't have to worry about any snakes getting me.
1: Well, that's a good transition. Let's let's get into the golf stuff, shall we? We shall. <clears throat> now we're going to meet Dan Hickson. Dan Hickson was a menace. Dan Hickson always knew that he wanted to build golf courses. The only issue was that he wasn't actually a golf course architect. After years of bouncing around the American Mini Tours and the Australian Tour as a, play- as a player... Hickson carved out a nice gig as a club professional at Columbia Edgewater Country Club in Portland. When the urge could no longer be ignored, Hickson quit, much to the dismay of his peers. The next day, he started introducing himself as Dan Hickson, golf course architect. I had zero experience, he said, with a laugh. I started asking around and tried to figure out how to get into the business and very quickly figured out that nobody was going to hire me, so I just had to start my own business. That's relatable. Ixen's design career started simply. He worked on small projects for clubs with a bit of disposable income and no real architecture architecture contacts, putting in a bunker here or lengthening a hole there. Eventually, his contacts in pro shops around the region, both his father and his brother were also PGA professionals in the Pacific Northwest, led to jobs, designing practice facilities, and short game areas. At most of these country clubs, there's always a similar conversation, he said. Hey, we want to do some work. Does anybody know an architect? And no one really does. But they all knew I was getting into it, so that's kind of how it started. After sprinkling plenty of practice areas and short courses around the Northwest, Hickson was approached by a friend who spoke the words that architects dream of. He said, I know these people who own land in Bandon and want to build a golf course. Hickson said, I just looked at him and said, yeah, right. As he dug into the project, he quickly found out that the land was not part of the hallowed resort on the Oregon coast, but a few miles down the road. He reached out to the project organizers, and they sent him an application packet with questions about his design firm and certifications. I just stared at it for two or three days, he said. I couldn't even say yes to one question that was in there. Dejected, he decided to call the organizers and just start talking. We chatted for a while. I told them I was bummed that I didn't qualify under any of their standards they were using, but that I was incredibly passionate about being considered. I finally just said, what are you guys doing right now? I can get in my car, and I'll be there in a ha- an hour and a half. So I did, and within a few hours, they had basically hired me. To show how serious he was, Hickson had offered to design the course for free. The owners, by the way, refused that idea, but were impressed by his dedication. The project turned into Hickson's first 18-hole golf course, Bandon Crossings, the public, the affordable public track on Highway 101 that is familiar to almost every Bandon Dunes visitor. You remember driving past that, Neil? I do. Right, right, right off not, the highway. I there. have not played it though. I have not played it, but it's it's on my list. After the success of Bandon Crossings, Hickson was commissioned to design Wine Valley Golf Club, a sprawling sprawling course in Walla Walla, Washington, that has hovered on the edges of many top 100 lists. And it was the, at the opening ceremony for Wine Valley that he received a call introducing him to Scott Campbell, who wanted to talk about a piece of land called Sylvie's Valley Ranch. Before we get into this, what, what were your thoughts on the golf course?
2: Uh, very creative, um, both in the layout, you can you know, it's reversible, um, but in the fact that one thing that really stuck out to me was there was a stretch of holes where the fairway was continuously connected. Sure. That I just like that was the coolest thing ever. Um, really good use of trees, uh, both in very a fairway. Very few trees out there. Very few, but the ones that were there, he left some in the middle of the fairway. They they're good target lines, but they impacted a lot of uh, position. You know, positioning. So they right. became very strategic that you didn't even realize it. So, um, I mean, they didn't. You didn't realize how strategic they were until. You played it a second time, basically.
1: All right, let's move on. Hickson was an atypical golf course architect, which worked out well because Scott Campbell was an atypical golf course owner. Campbell played the game a bit but had no preconceived notions that typical course course owners bring to the table. Campbell wasn't completely sold on the idea of putting in a golf course, at least not at first. Part of the reason that he and Sandy had purchased Sylvie's Valley Ranch was to find a way to bring tourism and economic opportunity to the quiet part of the world that they both love so much. Golf seemed to have as good a track record of doing that as anything else. I think the golf course might have been the product of a lot of scotch drinking and hand-waving, Sandy said with
2: a laugh. Which I want to point out, they at the bar at Sylvie's, they had the most impressive collection of scotch. I've And rye. And I will ever I've i have ever seen and probably will ever see. <laughs> I mean, it was a five or six level... 30 foot high liquor shelf. that was shelf. that was all jeff jeff is like he's the tour guide through all the scotch oh my god it was that was probably a highlight of the of the trip as well
1: campbell and the prospective architect visited the land visited the land a number of times in 2009 and hickson did his best to convince campbell that he didn't have a spectacular golf course waiting for him on his property he had two the idea of building a reversible golf course had been stuck in hickson's mind for years He'd pitched it to other owners but could never convince them that it was anything more than a gimmick or a needless risk. Luckily, I've been rehearsing my pitch for quite a few years, Hickson said. I told Scott about how St. Andrews used to be reversible. I told him what it would mean to the resort and how we could basically get two courses on nearly the ground of one. It'd be an eco-friendly way to do things in that sense, and he loved that right after that. Today, guests play the Craddock course on even-numbered days and the Hankins course on odd-numbered days. The routing is mostly reversible, clockwise slash counterclockwise, but they, there are twenty-seven total greens, giving each course its own distinct moment. I thought that was cool, wasn't? Yes. People say it's reversible, but really, there's each course kind of has not. it's know.
2: definitely two separate courses. Yeah, but it's played across the same land, where those, and that's another reason those connecting fairways were so interesting.
1: Correct. The project kicked off in the throes of the financial crisis, which meant the crew was small and the progress was slow. Rather than take a, take a typical design fee, Hickson signed on as an employee of the resort for the nine years it took to complete the course. Nine years. I didn't realize that. How about that? As a result, he was involved in much more than just the golf course operations. He helped build the roads. He landscaped the property. He even worked to help on the, the Beaver Helper Dams. It was a lengthy project, but the result is stunning. Though they are mostly comprised, composed of the same land, the Craddock and Hankins course should be thought of as two distinct golf courses. Any stigma that a reversible course carries with them quickly evaporates within the first few holes of your second round at Sylvie's. Having seen the property of the day prior, you're al- you're already armed with knowledge of different fairways and alternate angles into greens. It's a cyclical feeling that makes the second round infinitely more fun than the first, the third more fun than the second, and so on until it's time to return to civilization.
2: But you are, I'd add to that, you've seen the fairways before, but I, because you're out in the middle of nowhere, it, you, it was tough to play some stuff. Yeah. I, can't, I mean, especially on the first round, you're like, wait, okay, so even the second day, I was like, is this, this is eight on the, you know, because the, yeah. there's no, there's not a ton of landmarks or no definitely uh, the land all looks the same. A lot it's of them, sometimes
1: you don't even realize until you're standing on the green, like, oh shit, we played this yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The golf matches the resort. It's rustic and minimalist, shaggy around the edges, but refined and handcrafted in all the best ways. The fairways are massively wide. That might be an understatement, honestly. <laughs> but the relentless wind and the firmness of the greens are a humbling trade-off. One of my favorite features was the set of five consecutive fairways that quietly connect and roll into each other like a capital W with an extra limb. There you go, Neil. It's fun when people walk off the course after their second round, Hickson said, because you can just see that the light has gone on for them. They'll always say the same thing. I'd heard about reversible golf, but I just couldn't really picture it. Now it makes sense. End quote. Sylvie's also features two short courses, both done by Hickson as well. McVeigh's Gauntlet, named after a bootlegger. That was your boy, McVeigh the bootlegger. Big time. Who homesteaded on the property in the late 1800s is a brutally difficult, that might be an understatement too, brutally difficult but endlessly fun challenge course. That was interesting. They don't call it a short course. They call it a challenge course. Uh, Consisting of mostly par threes and a few short fours. It's a fantastic bet settling course, though it's probably best known for the beer tree where a stocked cooler of beer sits in the shade of a massive pine atop the hill, one of the the course's steepest climbs. It was a big a big walk the, the,
2: up there. Yeah, the whole that whole gauntlet walk was very difficult. <laughs> yeah, and because you're basically hitting from the tops of these, like you know, desert hills, over these giant massive ravines, ravines of desert, and then it's like this little target you got to hit that you can't really see. Uh, it was it was it reminded me more of golf in Arizona.
1: Yeah, agree. But the Chief Egan course is why most people initially have initially heard of Sylvie's. <laughs> I don't, this, sorry, this just popped into my head. But um, I was wondering why I was struggling so much on the the McVeigh's Gauntlet. And I realized it's because I got stung by that yeah. bee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on your tongue. Yeah, and so I had a bunch of like Benadryl and stuff. I got stung by it. I had a bee fly into my cocktail, the horseshoe nail. The horseshoe nail. We had about 30 of those. Uh, had a bee fly into my
2: cocktail. I took a sip because it had a crab apple in it, and it had a
1: crab apple. So I was like, "Oh, I got like some of the crunchy, like kind of crab apple stem in my drink." And it was a bee. It stung me in the tongue. And then Neil wanted to go play golf, so we had to keep no. We, we, we keep were moving.
2: seriously concerned. We're gonna have to airlift you to.
1: There's no civilization yeah, around. It was.
2: It was. Could have been a very, <laughs> very tough scene. Had, I, had you not been such a, a, a you know, a, a homesteader. <laughs> a yeah. Exactly.
1: I couldn't really remember if I was allergic to bees. I was like, I, I think I know. I'll you be were okay, me but there for a while. Yeah. Anyways, uh, but yeah, you weren't yeah you weren't really <laughs> in good shape. I wasn't. I'd love love to have another crack at that one without the without the the drama hanging over me.
2: <laughs> let's just say his lip swelled up pretty good. It
1: did. It was tough. It was tough to talk. Uh, yeah,
2: moving looked on. Like, it looked like Will Ferrell in, uh, or no, uh, Will Smith in uh, Hitch uh, in Hitch. Yes, exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, I felt like Will Ferrell in old school though when he gets the dart in his neck. Uh, all right, moving on. <laughs> But the Chief Egan course is why most people people initially heard of Sylvie's. On the short pitch and putt, players have the opportunity to hire one of the resort's two goat caddies. This is exactly what it sounds like. Two caddies, uh, their names are Mike and Bruce, split the rounds on the Chief Egan course using specially made saddlebags to carry drinks, balls, and a few clubs hole to hole. I think the, the bags were made by Seamus Golf. They were. Uh, Oregon's own. The goats are trained to stay off the greens. At all times, and apart from Bruce trying to eat some of Neil's unkempt hair when he wasn't looking, they mostly graze and keep to themselves. That got a little scary for a second, too.
2: But uh, Bruce and Mike were (laughs) my dudes. Like, listen, I understand, and it's also crazy that the goats eat the—they eat the shrubs, the weeds, right? They don't eat the grass, yeah, which is what the cattle. So that the goats are a perfect complement to the cattle. Exactly. What were their? You might get to it, but three thousand cattle on pro or uh, five thousand cattle on property. And I think two to three thousand goats. I think more, maybe even more than that. I think I
1: put it in here too,
2: but I think there's more.
1: Anyways, let's let's finish strong. Sure. Goat caddy is the most competitive job on the ranch, and it's not even close. Sandy and his, her team have more than three thousand goats on property. There you go. And only Mike and Bruce have made it into the big leagues of full time caddydom. The others. Uh well the family style dinner features goats on the menu each night. So it's had called you ever ha-
2: Chevelle. It's Chavon. Chevelle's Siobhan. Siobhan. the band. Yeah. Sorry. Uh <laughs> which I you- didn't know what that was another dumb question I had. I was like, what is Chavon? What is Chavon? And they were like, oh, it's French for goat. I was like, ah, oh, sweet. <laughs> you had that? have you ever eaten goat? That was the first time. Me too. I loved it. It was good. Yeah, it was very good. Uh and I, I do think that there were other there was one other caddy, uh, but that caddy got pregnant. I think you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she was on maternity leave and it they didn't some... know if she was going to come back. Right. So,
1: well, more on that story. Yeah. As, as we'll we find we'll out. have to get
2: Sandy's comment on that.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Last paragraph or last section, I should say. After dinner, guests make their way outside to the communal fire pit where Jeff puts out coffee, cocktails, and s'mores ingredients. It's quiet between conversation, but it's a comfortable quiet as you listen to the bonfire crackle like a vinyl record that's run out of tracks to play. I think I would have been a pretty good frontiersman, Neil said, with a stern confidence on our first night, (laughs) siffing his drink. Somehow, Sylvie's is able to bottle up this feeling and serve it to each guest.
2: Did I say that? I don't think I said that. Uh,
1: (laughs) After sunset, much of uh, this confidence is delivered through the signature horseshoe nail, a rye-based cocktail. The following day, after our ATV tour of the ranch's cattle and goat operations, Neil emphatically amended his statement and then blamed his hubris on the whiskey and the quiet, infectious comfort of the resort. Do you have anything to say, or did I pretty much nail that?
2: Oh, yeah, I think you nailed it. I, then we saw the homesteaders' uh, place, and I was like, "Man, this is this, this is the life is for me." Real tough. The next day.
1: <laughs> oh right, yeah. The night before, I mean, you were kind of saying, yeah. it's the night for well, the this, life. Well, I think
2: the stars got to yeah. me too. I love a good. Full, I mean, the stars were unbelievable out there. Took yep. a few night night pictures, too. We did. Yeah.
1: Uh, just like at dinner, the conversation comes easy around the fire pit. We found it came easy everywhere at the resort. There's plenty to keep you entertained, but the lack of any extra bells and whistles just crystallizes how often we feel distracted in our real lives for no reason. Something as simple as talking, really talking, and connecting with the other guests tends to feel more like an exotic experience than a chore. And when the conversation runs out, you could take your time appreciating the roughly 12 billion visible stars overhead. Sylvie's forces you to rethink what you're really looking for in a golf trip. After enjoying some time spent getting to know complete strangers around a dinner table in a fire pit, I learned it wasn't privacy I was after. It wasn't luxury or opulence either, not after spending three hours throwing hatchets into stumps and getting rattled around on a dirty ATV. It seems that for many, the answer is simply a true experience. And the elements that make up Sylvie's, the scenery, the history, the food, the traditions, do plenty to make you feel alarmingly content. Golf is the reason you made the trek, of course, and it's spectacular. But like all the best golf excursions, you'd be doing yourself a disservice here if that was the sole focus of the trip. I can get tunnel vision on the golf stuff, Hickson said. But it just seems like people walk away feeling like golf is only just a part of it, which is great. It's the whole experience that really captures people. And that's a testament to Scott and Sandy and the people working there. In our world of constant distraction, it's genuinely disarming to feel, to be relaxed on that level. Let me read that again. I think that's a good sentence. In our world of constant distraction, it's genuinely disarming to be relaxed on that level. It makes you feel extra chatty, generous, and nostalgic. We heard that the week before we visited, someone bought a bottle of Macallan 25 to pass around the bar with the other guests that they had just met. After my stay, that didn't sound so crazy.
2: Absolutely, I'd say um, there's no cell service, as you mentioned earlier. Um, you, you know, there's Wi-Fi in the the accommodations, which are delightful, by the way. Yeah, the the cabins. Um, but they give you the my the highlight was they give you a two-way radio and a golf cart when you when you check in, and it's kind of like it's it feels like adult summer camp. It's oh. like all right, cool, uh, go wherever you want, but uh, you know, just be careful. Like don't like you. It's a TC way. Like, do use your best judgment. Don't be a scumbag. Don't be an idiot. Right. So, well, how about this? Was completely
1: unplanned, but like, take a look at what we're both drinking out of here. Is our our
2: uh, what do you call them? Hydro flask. Our hydro
1: Because it's the first thing that they give you. Is basically yeah. like yo, stay hydrated. Yeah. Here's an insulated water bottle. Like, don't don't lose this.
2: Best shout out to hydro It is the best one I've yeah I've ever had. I use it every day, and it has the uh, the brands. That was another big thing. So they've got all these different uh, brands. For the different families uh for the different homesteaders um and so they tell you the history of that as well um but yeah the, i, the, I would, the point being i
1: think that they, they they give you everything you need and, and nothing more exactly and i can i've been to you know not to sound like a douche but like been to a, a good share of uh resorts and and golf trips and stuff and i can think of you know, one thing that I've actually like kept and used in my functional life, and it's probably this water bottle. So yes. that's <laughs> a good example of uh, some of the stuff you take away from there, I think.
2: Yes. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff to do that we didn't do. You can bike. I think you can... Um,
1: I, I just, you could almost do everything like twice. Yes. Right? You know, like you could go on a tour of the property twice. You'd pick up more. You could go hang with the goats for longer. You play each golf course three times. Would well, be that's what something I'd you do. didn't
2: mention is we were the only guys on that golf course. Maybe one or two other groups yeah. all day. And so it is you can you could go play golf for from dawn to dusk up there and play it every which way. Yeah. And I mean you go to like plus the challenge courses.
1: Bandon is awesome. Nobody likes Bandon more than me, but you have uh you know, you have people who stay off property and kinda parachute into Bandon each day. You have you have that at, at all these resorts, right? And like here, there's nobody staying you know there's i don't know where the closest hotel is that's yeah. not here there's nobody staying you know
2: they were adamant about like not driving at night yeah you exactly know, it's, so, it's there it's that rule and that, and there's no there's no way to get in touch so
1: with somebody. so the point being there's only so many cabins on site which yeah. means there's only so many people on site which means there's only so many people playing golf uh, and so it's it's kind of what i was hoping to drive home here is like there's just enough people around to to make it not feel spooky but you're never overwhelmed nothing's ever overrun uh it's just it's i don't know it's awesome i i absolutely loved it
2: i think some of the pictures in here also they remind me of the um the course is up on a hill so you drive yeah. up to it you drive the cart up to it and that there's some really sweeping views of the whole valley there is um so it's it's uh you and it feel like you're just out there in this in a beautiful landscape so it doesn't feel like a as much like a desert as i think uh i was expecting
1: and it's it's weird uh that a, a high desert like that feels uh kind of gorgeous, right? Cuz all the the land is just harsh. Yes. It's r- really harsh and kind of hard scraggly and stuff and but yeah, you get some views that it's just like breathtaking. Um Well, how did how did I do? Did I capture the experience all right?
2: I think you did. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Uh and I had a newfound respect for homesteaders and got deep into the Homesteader Act and all the stuff of people settling in the West. I mean, it was I mean, quite a lifestyle. Uh the government's going to give you the land, but hey, good luck out there, bud. <laughs> um speaking of good luck out there and the goat can we talk about how like i don't know if cute is the right word but how cool the goats were <laughs> they're so i cool. mean god yeah. and they were they're just like they have these um they have two two types of dogs the pyrenees right uh which are like the guard dogs and they, and got, like, they had the, like the, the peruvian
1: uh like dog like goat shepherds yes out there.
2: they have uh literal people per, not not yeah, dogs peruvian guys that were uh respond like kind of the goat shepherds and then Two sets of I dogs. I kind of
1: thought shepherd was like a job that had gone extinct, but no, absolutely not. Apparently,
2: they're like the experts on it yeah. worldwide. So they they have oh, they, they say they like have an H1N1 like the visas they like get these guys to come up to Sylvie's.
1: H1N1 I think was the the virus.
2: Well, I know it starts with an H. Hb one Hb one. Thank you. Sorry, <laughs> um, but these guys are like specialized in in herding goats. It's sweet. And then they had they had two like sets of dogs. They had the Pyrenees, which were like the guard dogs, right? And then they had the uh, Australian Shepherds, yep. or was it Border Collies?
1: <sighs> it was one of the I, yeah, I can't remember.
2: And those they were like they and, were the herders. They were like yeah. in charge of keeping the goats in line. But the big dogs were just kind of hanging out, waiting for the coyotes, trying to keep keep them away. Now, since we've been there,
1: <laughs> I was gonna say that's that's the last thing we got to cover here.
2: We, there, Sylvie's has been in the news for another reason. So I, I was
1: I was sitting at home, uh, minding my own business, scrolling Twitter at like I think it was like one in the morning. I don't know what I was doing up. I'm just looking at Twitter. And I saw, I think it was NPR tweeted out a... uh, Cows are being mutilated in, like, completely strange ways in eastern Oregon. And we had just gotten back from this trip. Maybe... It was maybe a month after we were there. I'll give you the
2: headline. NPR.org. Not one drop of blood. Cattle mysteriously mutilated in Oregon. It's
1: a click, of course. And, uh... It Turns out it was happening right around uh this Sylvie's Valley ranch. Colby Marshall, our guy that was quoted in, in our their story, cattle. a bunch it
2: was on, the, on their ranch. But yeah, there's I another think, there were a, a property that, exactly uh, farm or a ranch off property as well.
1: So, yeah, I don't uh, do you want to fill the people in on kind of what the story says?
2: So, basically, these cattle, um, and he takes the reporter up. It's a long article, I encourage everyone to go check it out. It is fascinating, but they. Uh, the cattle are being, like, sliced in a very, 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 like, surgical way where they even quote, like, a butcher in there. It's like, I literally could never cut an animal like this, let alone a, a you know, two-ton bull that is, like, going to – and that's what Colby says. He's like, how, how how do you do this, first off? Second off, we're in the middle of nowhere. Like, who comes in and does this? And they're, they're like, cutting the bull in this strategic way and cutting off the testicles of the bull and, like – then the 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 cow is not um, disintegrates not the right word what am I what am I looking for it,
1: just kind of the the insides kind of evaporate almost yeah right? like like the, but like the, the insides days get later like the cow out. is
2: not um, it's not decomposed decomposing like yeah. it, normally what it looks it just like it's just like it, it like an air got let out of the balloon yeah and they have the sheriff of the county Colby nobody has any idea what what is doing this to the cows and. They have like a whiteboard of like brainstorming, like who could be doing this. No
1: footprints around it.
2: Nothing. No. No. No ATV tracks. No animal tracks. Prints,
1: No anything.
2: So you know, Kobe's like, "How is somebody backpacking in here? Like, what is possibly going on?" They have, and they still have no idea. Like, I've I've kept up with it, and they just they have no idea what's going on. And they had a board. It was like the sheriff was like, "It could be like Viet Cong." And like <laughs> they were just like throwing like, "What is going on?" So I think the FBI opened a case on it. Um, Like quietly, but they don't know. Some people are saying it could be aliens. But check this article out. (laughs) Like, if you like think I'm crazy, this is crazy. And it's I I saw another one. USA Today picked it up. I'm Um,
1: I'm very glad that this happened after we were there because it would have been way too big for me to try to wrap my head around for for this piece.
2: Not only that, it I mean, it is you're out there like like when you got stung by the bee. Like it kind of hits you like, oh man, there is no nowhere to go here. and at no point that I feel unsafe but it's so eerily quiet out there like after dinner we go back to the to the place uh to the cabin and it's like man you're it, it can be a little spooky so then you add something like that in there it's like whoa
1: it's it's alarming <clears throat>
2: it's alarming cuz you're just not used to ever feeling like that yes i think
1: if you lived out there it would be the most like being here where there's people constantly in your face all the time would be miserable yeah
2: anyways so uh, potential, i can't wait i can't wait potential to potential
1: alien visit Cannot um, wait to
2: go back to Sylvia's. and
1: I cannot wait to go back either. Well, hey, thanks for doing this. This was fun
2: for sure. I'm. Uh, I was happy we got to take that trip together. Me too. I think Me too. uh I think of all the NLU guys, we're probably the, the. We I think we would do the best as homesteaders. Thanks. You yeah. Agree
1: with that? I, no, I I totally agree with that. I totally I think, agree.
2: Uh, I think we're we're we like to think of ourselves as rugged. That's right. Uh, and uh, self sufficient. That's that's exactly right. In well, a modern way.
1: Well, hopefully we can get back there and do it again.
2: Okay. All right. Thanks. See you.